Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to DSC's Campfires with Larry Wysoon, the unique blend of hunting, fishing, wildlife conservation, and the outdoor lifestyle. DSC's Campfires is brought to you by DSC, conservation, education, and hunter advocacy. Hornady, accurate, deadly, dependable. Trigicon, brilliant aiming solutions. Taurus, award-winning pistols and revolvers. Mossberg, American-built, American Strong, and the Red 55 Winery in Lindale, Texas. Signature wines of Grammy Award-winning country artist Miranda Lambert and owned by Rick and Beverly Lambert. In many ways, the day had been punishing. Many long, arduous hours of hunting, but no harvesting. We had tracked a dog boy, stalked multiple zebras, eaten lunch under the canopy of a lucky bean tree, and were exposed to countless new adventures or Excuse me, countless new experiences, wildlife, and land. Heck, we'd been showered by the feces from the giant butt-sized bats. I couldn't remember having a day as exhausting, sweltering, grueling, and sometimes frustrating. Yet, unbelievably, I couldn't wait to do it all over again. Miss Sue Tidwell, that is a quote from your book of Cries of the Savannah. What a fabulous book. It is so good to have you around the campfire with me this morning. Oh, thank you so much, Larry. It's great to be here. I'm happy to talk with you, and I'm glad you enjoyed the book. I, I have. I'll tell you what. I, I want to know a little bit about what brought this book about and, and what kind of took you to Africa to begin with. Well, I had always wanted to go to Africa, even as a non-hunter, since I was a kid. Um, but I married a hunter, and he always dreamed of Africa. So um, our dreams were quite different. <laughs> I dreamed of a lodge, you know, and the, you know, the National Geographic type thing, driving through the parks and all the animals stand there as you woo and awe. But um, Rick, of course, wanted to go hunting. So, and he wanted us to do old style, as old style as possible. So he wanted to sleep in a tent in remote Tanzania. And anyway, um, it wasn't the same dream, but it was close <laughs> enough. So, <laughs> so even though I was scared to death, I uh, put on my big girl panties, as I like to say, and um, went for went to Tanzania with them. Well, you mentioned having wanted to go to Africa. What was your background? And all this is covered in the book, and I actually have read all the things we kind of talked about. But, but what what kind of got you started into the outdoors, or were you into the outdoors to begin with as as a young child? Oh, I've always loved the outdoors, but not so much the hunting and fishing part. My brother, I did grow up a hunting family, so I had four brothers that hunted, and my dad hunted. Um, but my mom and my sister and I kind of gravitated towards the river. We had a camp on the river, so I was more of a river rat. I just wanted to be on the river, in the river, anywhere near the river. Um, I didn't even have to be fishing. I was just happy to be, you know, in a boat or sit kayaking or something. But um, So I've always loved the outdoors, but I never went hunting with my brothers um, and my dad. That was like when I grew up, you know, I was born in the 60s. Right. So when I grew up, it was kind of that division of, you, you know, Women just didn't hunt as much back then. 
or not in, in our area anyway. And I was so thrilled when the boys and dad left the house that <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved having that alone time because we had a small house and you have all the all that testosterone in the house. So it was great to have a break when they left. So <laughs> I never went with them. You know, by the time I saw the deers, they were hanging in the garage, you know, all dressed and, you know, ready to get turned into hamburger. So, um, yeah, so I never went with him until I met Rick and started going on hunts with him and saw it from a whole different, whole different perspective. Let's talk a little bit about that. Before you started, uh, before y'all made your first trip to Africa, you met your husband and y'all got married. Had did y'all hunt any there in your part of the state there of Idaho when that happened? Yeah. Or yes, yes, I did hunt. Our first hunt was in um, Caribou up in. Um, Alaska and oh my gosh it was a traumatic experience it was the first time I was with them for a kill and I was I mean I was just bawling (laughs) 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 it was kind of hard on Rick and and there was an injured one and he ended up I made him kill the injured one which he probably wouldn't anyway anyway it was a whole big he says anyway it was quite the experience for my first one but um, then I started hunting with him in Idaho. When we moved here to Idaho, I started hunting elk hunting with him in the backcountry of Idaho. And I just fell in love with the whole camp experience and the backcountry and riding horses and backpacking and all that goes with the hunt. Um, even though I had no desire to pull the trigger myself, I I just found myself loving that part of it and the adventure. You just never knew what was around the next corner. You never knew what was going to happen. And and as you know, hunting's hunting, so a lot of times you go home empty-handed, but it was still a magnificent experience just being in the backcountry. So I, I just loved it. My wife grew up in a hunting family where both her mom and dad hunted, and my mom hunted. So to me, when all this came about, where I, I wasn't even aware that women and ladies and girls didn't hunt. I mean, but my wife grew up, as I said, in a hunting family, but she could have cared less about anything having to do with trying to kill an animal. Yet when we got married, uh, and she's not hunted ever, but I would take her to the different ranches that I managed, and uh, she'd go look for airheads and shit antlers and you want to guess who saw all the big bucks when she did that? <laughs> always her. Huh? It was all. It was always. She'd come back. Of course, she knew what a good deer looked like. She go, "Do you know anything about this deer?" And she'd kind of draw a picture in the sand or tell me about it. You know, visually kind of describe it. And I'd go, "No, I've never seen that deer before. Where did you <laughs> see that one?" Kind of thing. <laughs> She made your mouth water. Oh, she did. Let me tell you, she really <laughs> did. And and uh, we have two daughters. And of course, both my daughters hunted. My grandkids have hunted. And my grandson and granddaughter. And, and uh, I've got a little great-grandson and a little great-granddaughter right now. And I've already gotten rifles for them. And I can't wait to get them out as well, too. And I, I've learned something. And, and since we're talking about women hunting, I, I learned something about ladies who hunt. Uh, I, I've, I've never had a desire to have any kind of feminine traits, but I have taken some guys out on hunts who have hunted all over the world and, and they were really interested in white-tailed deer and you put a white-tailed deer that's of sizable antlers in front of them and they close their eyes and pull the trigger and ask you if they hit it and you go, no, you missed that one about 60 yards to the left. 
you put that same deer out there in front of a lady and she goes, that one with all that pretty stuff on her head? Uh, yes, ma'am, that would be the one. Bang, the, the deer goes down. You know, no excitement at all until they start walking up to where that animal is and see how really pretty and beautiful it is. And then their knees get weak and their, their voice goes up numerous octaves. And I've always told people, I said, if there's ever a feminine trait, I wish that was me because I have to talk myself saying, okay, settle down, you know, don't get ex- overexcited, don't look at the antlers, you know, try to make the shot count. But uh, the fact that you're hunting with your husband, that that, that makes it really interesting. Let's, let, I want to get back to the book, though. I mean, we've got, unfortunately, kind of a limited amount of time. I've got uh, an appointment I've got to go to here for too very long, but and this is one of the opportunities that we had to visit. Of course, we talked about all this at DSC, but uh, what prompted you to write this book? Well, you know, even though I grew up in a hunting family, um, I was one of those people who wanted to pick and choose what animals it's okay to hunt, right. or I was. So I think it's okay to hunt. I thought it was okay to hunt elk and deer, but when my husband suddenly wanted to hunt a zebra or a leopard, for instance, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Um, that's, you know, that really had me questioning things. Right. Um, but luckily I had enough, I know enough about hunters and grew up in hunting families, so I respect and love hunters, actually, and their ethics, um, or at least most of them. And um, <laughs> right. Most hunters, I should say. And uh, so I was willing to give it, you know, be open-minded about it. But when I was over there, I came to understand how important hunting is to Africa, even those prized animals that we adore um, from afar. So um, I, I just learned so much. We had a female game scout who spoke pretty good English. Um, Tanzania signs a game scout with every hunting party. Right. That's not affiliated with the hunters at all, so or the hunting concession. So she just got to know everybody like I did. And um, we were taken care of by 21 Tanzanians um, from representing six different tribes. And um, anyway, we became fast friends. And she, as a game scout, she taught me so much. And I just came to understand why it was so important. And by the end, I was so passionate about. I get all, I get all emotional when you talk about. But um, I understand. <laughs> when I talk about, I came to, I fell in love with those people and yes. the nation of Tanzania and Africa in general. You know, the African nations and. Um, I just came to understand the threat that they're against as far as people who don't understand hunting. Even people like me who understood it here didn't understand hunting in Africa. So I made a promise to Lillian before I left that I would try to help the world understand. And that promise evolved into Cries of the Savannah. And um, I, to be honest, I had no idea what I was doing. I've never written a book. Um, I, I've never... You know, I've written Christmas letters <laughs> for years, and my friends always told me, hey, you need to write a book. And I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Who wants to hear what I have to say? But um, I finally felt like I had something to say, and so that's where it came from. With the book is phenomenal in in so many different ways, and the points that you made, I I would dearly hope that anybody who has ever questioned the fact of why we hunt animals in Africa would read this book because I know they'd come back with a totally totally 
real understanding. I've had the opportunity to hunt in Africa. I've not been to Tanzania, but I've hunted a bunch of numerous nations. And you're right, hunting is so very important, not just for the local people and the habitat, but for the preservation. And I hate to use the term preservation because to me, preserving something generally means it, it's a killing thing. Or, But it, a management perspective is totally different. Preservation to me is death, management or conservation, which is the wise use of any particular thing that you're, you're, you're into. Uh, that creates life. And that's really kind of what happens here in Africa with the hunting, isn't it? Exactly. It is so important to maintain habitat. I mean, that their populations are growing like crazy. And that land, if it's not valuable as a hunting concession, um, it's going to be turned into croplands or farm or, um, cattle pasture, sheep pasture, they have to make that land valuable in some other way. So if, if you're going to take one point, I mean, there's a lot of things that are important about it. If you're going to take one thing, it's the fact that they make less appealable lands valuable in its natural state, because not, not all lands in Africa are suited for photo tourism. So that's where, Af- that's where hunting steps in. You know, they need both kinds of tourism. They need photo tourism and hunting tourism to work together. They really do. I've, I've been on some concessions in some places where there's a certain period of time where they have uh, photo safaris, and the rest of the time they have hunting safaris. And and sometimes, unfortunately, those places don't get explained as to when the people come in, they see all the wildlife, and they go, oh, my gosh, you know, they, they don't, don't realize that the reason that wildlife is still there is because of the hunters that come in that are paying big dollars that are providing food for the for the uh, for the locals that are providing jobs for the locals and to me that is a message that unfortunately sometimes doesn't get out in some of those places well you know some of those hunting areas are so remote like look at us we had if we would have drove to our hunting spot in Tanzania it would have taken 16 hours and we ended up chartering a flight which was expensive but worth it because we were there in two and a half hours so and we don't see near the, the animals that you see on you know a national geographic and the animals don't stand there and let and pose for you in hunting concessions they run so you know tourists they want the scenic spots they want easy access they want tons of animals they want to see all the animals they expect to see they want to see rhinos lions all that not all the hunting sessions have everything and um, anyway, yeah, there's a lot of reasons that um, it's just so important for people to recommend for recognize how much habitat hunting saves. It really does. I, I was very fortunate. We were hunting up in what used to be called the Caprivi Strip here in Namibia and right over into Botswana and, and Angola and all those areas right there. But uh, we went to a national park in Botswana right across the river from from uh, from Namibia and we saw elephants. And we saw elephants, and we saw elephants. We saw very little other wildlife. The the elephants there had increased in such number that they had literally destroyed. It almost looked like a moonscape, where in years past there had been all kinds of different plains game, all kinds of little ground animals, all kind of birds, songbirds. There was there was nothing there, hardly but elephants anymore. And hunting would have taken care of that situation and where they would have properly managed that population of elephants. And, you know, they're going, well, you can just catch them and move them somewhere else. There's limited habitat still available where elephants can exist. And hunting then becomes so very important, not just to control the herds, but to control 
everything that's there, particularly the habitat. It's good for the habitat, and if you have good habitat, then you'll have the plains game. You'll have all the little ground squirrels and the little all the little critters that, that live there, including songbirds. And yet, on that property where there was no hunting, there were elephants and virtually nothing else. It is so sad. Um, conservation in Africa or anywhere, pray for that matter, is so complex and complicated. It can't be just talked about in a quick sound bite. No. Because there are areas of Africa that don't have enough elephants. But there are areas like you're talking about that are so overpopulated and they're eating themselves out of house and home and destroying biodiversity, like you said. And it's just, but you know, uh, but so many times things are managed because people want to see those elephants. And so, and now with the whole anti-agenda, gosh, it's so hard for these African countries to manage their wildlife properly because of they get so much feedback from what needs to be done because a lot of times what needs to be done is really unpopular. Well, it is amongst certain masses, if you will. One of the uh, my favorite little meme type thing shows a, a group of Africans sitting around a campfire and they're talking about what ought to be done to elk in, in North America or whitetail in North America. And, you know, the, the right, if you look at that the right way, that's kind of what we're doing as, as outsiders, not so much those of us that are involved in, in wildlife conservation organizations, but a lot of the masses, they go, oh, my God, kill elephants. Oh, my God, no, you know, kill zebras or whatever. You know, oh, you can't do that. But in the process of that, you know, they need to allow those countries, as far as I'm concerned, who have a good staff of wildlife biologists who are concerned about the wildlife, who are concerned about the perpetuation of wildlife and the, and the true wildlife conservation of them. We need to allow those folks to do those, make those decisions as to what should be taken, what shouldn't. Instead of uh, people that live in Los Angeles, Sacramento, New York City, Paris, London, you know, those kind of places. Exactly. I, I actually use that same little meme. I talk about that same little oh, really? meme in, um, <laughs> in Chapter 30, I think. I yes. It, because it is so true. And plus, we're not the ones living with these dangerous, destructive creatures. You know, but it's, it's one thing to sit here in our little armchair and, and try to say what's best for African nations when, you know, we're just thousands of miles away. But, yeah, I thought that was pretty telling, that that. It, it, it really is. I've, I've been fortunate to have been over there, and I've, I've shot elephants for food for the villagers up in the Caprivi Strip. And those people have to deal with those elephants on a daily basis, a daily basis meaning that they get chased by the elephants when they try to go get water from a well that's a mile and a half away. They get their homes destroyed when an elephant comes through and steps on their houses. Or they plant this small little garden that they really kind of depend upon for food for the rest of the year. And the elephant comes in and takes a couple different bites and steps on everything else and destroys it. Those people are having to deal with those animals on a day-to-day basis. And yet they, because there is hunting in those areas, they will tolerate some of that because they know they're going to get money from from working at different things having to do with fire companies. They know they're going to get food from when that elephant goes down as well, too. Well, you know, in Botswana, um, made hunting elephants illegal for those years. Right. Poaching went up 600% because there was no reason. Poaching elephants went up 600% because there was no reason for the people to deal with that. I mean, they were just destructive 
they lost their fear of humans and like you said it's destroying their infrastructure their crops their livelihoods and um so yeah it's just there's just so much about it it's just so important that we recognize because people have to benefit the local people oh, yes. have to benefit or it just doesn't work I, I read something very long not very long ago I, i'm not not quite sure on the exact numbers, but I want to say like 92% of the elephants in the world exist in 12 African nations that hunt, where they're not hunting the populations in elephants and all kinds of other wildlife, of course, going way down. And, and part of that comes in from, from a poaching situation. And you can kind of understand poaching in some way, although I don't, I, I don't abide by it. But, you know, if my family were hungry and there was nothing to eat, except for what I could partake of, you know, that I could capture or whatever. I, I might consider doing that as well, too. Yet, and with that kind of situation, all animals get destroyed. Yet, when, the, again, going back to where there's hunting in those areas, the people get food, they get paid. There are so many different reasons. And then all of a sudden, yes, the, the, the wildlife has value. And so they tolerate a lot of things that they might not otherwise do so. Exactly. You know, and, and here's another thing that you kind of mentioned that a lot of people get lost on as far as hunting in Africa. Um, they say, oh, well, I can't take home the meat. I, I don't kill anything I don't eat. <laughs> well, I can tell you it is way more fulfilling to see an animal killed and that meat given to people who really need that meat. I mean, I can't. Well, you've been there. You know how that touches your soul. I mean, when you see those people and the little that they have, um, and you see that meat going to those people, it, it's just, it hits you in a whole different way. So, I was like I said, the thing goes, there's not, the, the only thing left in Africa is the wet spots. That's not a thing goes to waste. You're right. There, I've been fortunate again where we shot elephants for, for meat for the local population and we at times we're, we're doing tv stuff and we were trying to get photographs and all that kind of thing but the game scouts we'd have like up to 100 to 200 people following us around to uh to as soon as that animal went down you know they had to, have to get the game scouts up to keep them kind of farm a human fence to keep them from coming in and we'd get our pictures and whatever we did real quick and then open it up and an elephant would be totally taken apart in about four or five hours. And the smiles on the people's faces were just, I mean, so heartwarming because now they had meat and they had meat, you know, that was going to last them for a while too. Same thing. We've, we've shot hippos on what they call own use permits in the, up in the Caprivi. And we would take every little bit of that animal to different villages and, Again, every bit of it got used. There, there, there was nothing that went to waste, whether it was on elephants, whether it was on hippos, or for that matter, even on some of the uh, some of the plains game that we took in those areas, or buffalo as well, too. Well, you know, we even though Tanzania was supposed to be our one and done, you know, once in a lifetime experience, as you know, you can never go to Africa just once. So we went to Mozambique a couple years ago, and right. went frog hunting, and we were like you, we had. I think by the third day, we had, had 167 people waiting for us on shore when we came back um, off of the Zambezi River. Um, each day, it just grew. And they, we had like a whole entourage of people and kids following us. And most of them had never seen a phone before. And they did, anyway, they just loved seeing that we 
take pictures and they pose because they just love seeing themselves <laughs> on pictures. But anyway, by the, the fourth day, I said to Rick, because he didn't plan on hunting hippo. Right. And I said, honey, you have to take a hippo. You, I, I'm not leaving these people without giving them some, because we knew they were hoping for meat every night. Exactly, you know? right. So um, Rick took a management hippo, which means you pay that money because you don't bring anything home. No. You bring no, nothing home. So it's just for the people. Um, we, he killed one, um, the next day we get it to, got it to an island and we were there when all the, the, you know, those dugouts start coming in to harvest the hippo. Yes. Little Makuros. Um, oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. And it's just, and they're, they're in those waters and those crop infested waters and those little boats with barely two inches of clearance. It's just <laughs> terrifying to watch. It is. But, um, and then we were, went back to the crop line to sit. And we heard drums going, I heard drums up at the river and then drums down the river. And right. I, our PH said, do you know what that is? And I said, no, what, what's going on? He says, that's the villages notifying the other villages up and down the river that there's meat tonight. So, I'm oh my you. gracious. It's just, it just hits you in ways that we just can't even comprehend here. So, um, yeah, I totally get what you mean about having all those people show up and, and for, for the protein absolutely but, um, and, and as you mentioned none of that went to, nothing went to waste uh, of the animals that we shot there for, for the and they were shot for that purpose the the only thing that i brought back on those was photographs a little bit of footage and you know great memories of not only the hunt and from a personal perspective but also from a perspective of what all we did for the villagers, how important it was that we were there. And because of the fact that we were there and they were getting money from a, from the paid from a concession to some extent and dollars were being pumped into their local little villages by hunters who helped set up water wells and all kinds of other good things. And then they were getting the meat on the other side of it as well, too. To me, that was just, as you mentioned, it, it's hard to describe. And it, it's hard to describe unless somebody has actually been there and seen and spent time with those folks because they have a hard life. And particularly in some of those areas where there still are a great number of elephants, we keep coming back to that because the elephant's an interesting animal. He'll, he'll walk up to a tree, knock down a tree, and take one bite out of that, one limb off of it, and then go on to another one and, and do the same. And, uh, those elephants are really a problem in certain areas of, of Africa, particularly with the human population that we have. But through hunting, again, I come back to this fact that they tolerate them because of the fact that there is an economic value and a food value for them because the hunters coming in and taking the animals. Yeah, and a lot of people lose their lives to them. You know, these villagers go out there trying to protect their crops with what little they have, beef pots and pans or whatever they have. And, you know, elephants stomp them and kill them. I mean, I was just reading an article the other day um, since they reintroduced elephants to an area. And I'm, forgive me because I forget all the, de the details. Right. The the but anyway, eight people have died since they were relocated and nothing has been done to help the people. It was done by, you know, a group, um, but they swore they were going to work with the people and everything, but nothing has been done to help these people who lost their lives and all the people that depended on them. So it's just so sad to see. It really is. One of the elephants that I shot, and I've only shot a couple of them, but one of the bulls that I shot on this own use thing, it had torn down, I don't know how many homes and destroyed how many gardens and 
And when we finally shot that one individual bull, they were just absolutely thrilled, no end, the fact that it was no longer there. And, of course, about the food as well, too. But it, it just kind of took that one elephant out of the herd. And uh, the rest of them were kind of following him. And, and once we got rid of that one, it seemed like uh, they kind of went back to more natural things. And, and uh, so we had an effect there without really even realizing to the long-term effect that we had. But that elephant had had. had I can't remember the number, like eight or ten homes just very, very recently and just stomped and ate the gardens. And again, they were just absolutely thrilled and they knew the elephant. They they put us on to him and said, you need to go here. You need to go there. You need to go there. And we were fortunate to finally find him and, and, and take him out. Well, how wonderful to be able to like be a part of that. Oh, my gosh. You know, yes. <laughs> in a village like that. That's, that's amazing to me. I've had several friends who've been over there who are fortunately more well healed than I am when it comes to dollars. And once they got over there, and it kind of like you mentioned that one one and done kind of thing, I, I got tickled because before they went, they called me and says, "I'm going to go to Africa." And I said, "Yeah, I know why." And I said, "They said, no, I said, I'm going to go this one time. I want to get it out of my system." And I said, "Then don't go." <laughs> Because on the plane back, you're going to be thinking, if I sell this, if I do this extra job, if I do this, I can go back next year. But thankfully, these guys went over and uh, had a great heart, have a great heart, and saw how some of these people were living and some of the, the, the difficulties they had, and, and including trying to establish schools. And a couple of these guys who had a, have a fair amount of money now pretty much just sponsor those schools and it's amazing the, the number of kids that have gone through those schools again that goes back up to in the area of Botswana and in the, the northern part of the Caprivi there but it's amazing you, know, you, hear, you hear so many great I wish I was in that position as well but you me too so many great <laughs> stories that, of hunters who go there and then they end up buying motorcycles for anti-poaching crews or they build schools or they you know the things you're talking about or they buy boots for all the um, anti-poaching patrols. There's just so many things that hunters really do that, that people don't even know about, you know, and it's really nice to see that those who can um, do step up as much as possible. You're right. We're very fortunate through DSC. We have the DSC Foundation that I've served on board for three years and now serve as an advisor. And we have a special program where people can contribute to that money being allocated and directly sent to various uh, anti-poaching uh, patrols. And it has made a tremendous amount of difference. And in terms of the animals and in terms of the local people as well. And again, hunting is a part of that to where they get the food and they get some dollars, you know, as a result of hunters coming over. And I want to get back to your book some more. Tell me, tell me a little bit more about your book. And it's so delightful to read. It's so delightful and so informative and it's fun to read. But uh, tell me a little bit more about some of the chapters that you have there. Well, you know, like I said, I didn't know what I was doing, so I just wrote from my heart. And That's obvious. I wrote about the experience. Like, everything was so new and exciting to me. And I, I got some, even, I didn't think seasoned African hunters would enjoy the book, but it turns out yes, they take they them would. back to their first time there. So they love it as much as other people, it seems, because, or that's the feedback I get anyway. But, but yeah, so it's kind of like you're seeing Africa through, through my eyes, through a non-hunter's eyes, and everything is amazing, and everything is uh, wonderful and, and scary, and, 
And then, so I take you on the adventures with us, you know, on the yes. hunt, on Rick's buffalo hunt, zebra hunt, yes. goes down zebra, or darn zebra, I should say. Um, <laughs> you know, I didn't want to rip the hunt one, but by the end, I was like, holy cow, these things are, they're smart, but um, they're tough to get close to, and so I kind of had a whole different opinion of them by the time we were done. But, um, but anyway, so I take you on the hunt, and the buffalo hunt, and all the hunts, actually. Right. And I'm with Rick on everyone except when he hunts leopard. I, I am not good at sitting still, so thinking <laughs> of for all those hours, um, just, you know, I just could not do that. So um, that's the one kind of go. And then I kind of weave in the conservation as I learned it myself because you right. learn it in bits and pieces. And, like, what I like to say is it's not so much about facts, although facts are important. It is common sense. Like, once you're over there, and you see it, and you feel it, and you get to know these people, and you see the harshness of the land, it just all makes sense, you know, and so I think when you tell it in a story method, and you get, people get to know the people, because I, I kind of introduced people to Lillian, and Rafael, right. and Go-Go, and Joel, they all get to know those people like I do, and I want them to fall in love with, with them like I did, and with Africa or Tanzania, and um, care about Africa. So anyway, I just kind of take people on a fun adventure, and I weave in what I learned as I went along the way. You did it in, in an excellently well-done way, by the way. So most entertaining, most educational, all those other great things when it, when it comes to books. I want to, you, you mentioned zebras, and we've talked about this a little bit. Uh, uh, we're talking about hunting zebra, and my first zebra that I shot, I hunted days before I finally shot him. <laughs> And then what I didn't realize, I, I remember as a kid reading stories about Africa, which, um, you know, all old time writers that hunted Africa, a lot of times they would talk about how zebra was not good to eat. And I've come to realize after I finally tasted zebra why that was the case, because all the pHs, I think they kept the zebras for themselves <laughs> when it's all said and done. Because zebra that makes total sense. It is absolutely delicious. I mean, I, I shot an old stud that I would have thought, you know, even the back strap that we ended up having, I thought, well, it's going to be like eating the, the leather off one of the shoes that I was wearing. And it was so tender. It was like veal. It had an absolutely fantastic flavor. And I've gotten to now when I do have an opportunity to go to Africa, if there's a restaurant in, in route or, you know, once we get there before we get out into the bush, if they serve zebra, that is always one of the things that I want to try to eat while I'm there. Well, it's funny because, as you know, I was against my husband right? eating a zebra. So you can imagine that went to eating one. So I had, I had no desire to eat a zebra, and I was all stressed out knowing he got a zebra. I thought, oh, God, that's what we're going to have for supper tonight. You know, and, and I thought, okay, I've got granola bars, stashed, I'm good to go. Well, I knew I wasn't going to starve to death because they feed you well. But, oh, yes. But when that came out, I, I don't know if I was so famished or so tired, or it had been the cocktails we had. Oh, you know, yes. You always have a few cocktails. A few sundowners. When the zebra meat came out, I took it, and that was it. Oh, my God, it just melted in my mouth. And like I said, I, I was so hungry. That What that saying goes, I'm so hungry, I got to eat a horse. Yes. So I did. So. <laughs> well, that was you one know, of it, it was my favorite of all the meats we ate. It, it is. I, I was very fortunate years ago. I used to go to, and I, I keep coming back to Namibia because I fell in love with Namibia years ago, but I used to go with uh, Fred Birchall. And uh, 
Fred had property scattered all over and leases or concessions all over Namibia. And back then, and he's passed away about five, six years ago, but during those times when I was going there to, to visit with him, and I'd go there for like two weeks, he had lots of the European collectors, I'm talking about from museums, who were coming over to collect various animals to take back to the museums in Europe. And he would have the guys that work for him save every little bit of meat off of every animal they took, including snakes and birds and all those kind of things. And then while I was there, Fred, if I was there when they were doing the collection, Fred would have that meat prepared. And we ate so many different things. It's absolutely amazing. And almost every one of the things that you put in your mouth from the meat, from everything from amphibians to reptiles to birds to mammals, was out of this world good eating. I tell you, I don't know how, with, like, when you're out in the bush, I mean, you don't have fancy kitchens. No. And, you know, they're cooking over fires. They have a limited amount of spices and vegetables. I mean, because they didn't grow anything we were at. It all had to be hauled in. And I just can't believe how delicious everything was. I mean, they just, it was just phenomenal. The, you know, uh, yeah, it's amazing what they can do with wild game there. It, it, it really is. It, and to me, that is all part of, of, of that grand adventure that's called safari. And, and interestingly, it's a, the safari term sometimes gets a, a bad connotation, but it, it really, it's a Swahili term that simply means an adventure, like the Australians would say a walkabout type of thing. And that's really what it is. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're killing involved. But uh, unfortunately, like I say, sometimes these days when you say the term safari, it's, oh, my gosh, you know, you, you were doing what kind of thing? And uh, uh, and that's sad because uh, I'd, I'd love to see us get back to the to the time when that was a grand adventure that it truly is. Well, it's the same thing with, you know, the word trophy has been so, yes. you know, villainized. I mean. What is wrong, when you really think about it, what is wrong with taking one of the older animals who's lived a whole life and passed on his genes, and you're, they're harder to hunt, there's fewer of them, which makes hunting really hard. What is wrong with taking that animal rather than a young one in its prime? It, it, makes, it really makes no sense when you think of it that way to me. No, it it really doesn't. And to me, every I've, I've been fortunate. I've hunted a lot of places, and I've shot a lot of animals to eat, and all those kind of things. And every one of them has been a trophy to me. It's it's that trophy is the remembrance of that animal. Yeah, I've got some on the wall. And to me, the reason they're on the wall is out of respect for that animal that I took. And for me, every time I look up, sitting here in my office right now, and I'm looking at a, at a Sitatunga that I took in. Uh, in uh, Uganda and uh, on the Mayanja River area. And every time I look up that that mount, I recall every single minute detail of that hunt, the people that I was with, and how absolutely delicious that Sitatunga was when we finally got it back to camp. So it, is it a trophy? Yes, but uh, it, it's a trophy as far as the memory is concerned. And that's kind of where the and to me, what trophies are all about, it, it, it's the, the memory of that hunt, of that individual animal and everything that went into the, the taking of it. And in that, it's a reverence and a, a uh, respect for that animal. You know, it's like I said, and one person's trophy is not a trophy to somebody else. Yes. One of Rick's animals would be considered a trophy. They're, like you said, memory. When I walk into our game room and I see a Cape Buffalo with lion 
his scars down its neck. I relive, yes. like you said, I relive that whole hunt. And now, as you become more, like as I've become more educated about all this and more, even more respectful of wildlife since I've been doing this and going on hunts, I don't feel right if an animal is just as exquisite, whether it's a trophy or not. Right. I, I, I feel it should be paid respect. I yes. feel like when you mount it, you are, you are giving it the ultimate respect. You're sharing it with other people, you know, my grandkids, that they know yes. what all these African animals are because they see them. And um, anyway, yeah, it's just, it's a shame that that word is so um, villainized. As you mean, yeah, villainized. It, it, it really truly is. Uh, I had a fleeting thought, and unfortunately, it just kind of went by real fast. Right. <laughs> Interrupted you there. <laughs> and, and as we were talking about all this, but what coming back to it, you've done an absolutely fantastic job in this book of doing just what we're talking about, about letting people know. What else do you see that we can do to maybe open the hearts of some of these people who are so against hunting and particularly, and we're talking about Africa here, it's particularly about hunting in Africa as well. What can we do as individuals beyond what you're doing and what we're doing here? What do you think we can do to make people more aware of the, the, the real world and the real truths about hunting and how important it is for the conservation of the habitat, the animals and the people as well? I think we have to really tell the story. You know, it's not just, I mean, facts and figures are important, but I don't think you win hearts and minds of non-hunters with facts and figures. You have to appeal to their hearts and emotions. At least that's how it works for somebody like me. Right. So once you hear the story, you put faces of how it, how it actually protects habitat, how it helps people, how it, um, you know, the whole intricacies of things and how hard hunting is and all that's involved in it, and it's not like you just go and shoot out a window like some people <laughs> think. And, um, you know, I just, and, and like, what's really good with, with Prize of the Savannah is a lot of hunters read it for the hunt. Yes. Right? And, of course, they all, a lot of them say they learn, even though they thought, you know, they still learn a little something. Oh, yes. But, but um, they a lot of times share it with the non-hunters in their life, and that's why I you know, to be honest, like after I learned all this becoming an author thing, you're supposed to target a particular audience. Well, I did not do that. I just wrote from the heart. So, you know, people, when you look at my Amazon reviews, they're not hunters. They're hunters. They're, they're, um, they're women. They're women. It's like all over the place. So I just kind of wrote in general. But I need hunters to share it with the non-hunters. Because it's hard to get the book in the hands of non-hunters. But once they read it, they, they get it, you know, they get it and they enjoy the book because there, it's so much more than, uh, there is hunting in the book, but, but there's so much more in there. That, oh, yes. Um, it appeals to a wide demographic of people. So if hunters enjoy it, you know, buy it for your local library, share it with your friends, um, tell your family about it. Um, just, you know, just get it into the hands of more people because it is changing minds once I get it into people's hands. You know, I get a lot of positive, I even changed some anti-hunters' minds, so that's pretty cool. But, that um, is. So, anyway, um, but yeah, I think we just need to do more of telling the story and then maybe back it up with facts, but um, I think you've got to appeal to the hearts and minds of people more to get the point across. I, I think you're right. I think it's important that we have the facts and we have the, the true facts, if you will, 
but you're right. To me, we need to appeal to some people's emotions as well, too. And sometimes that is the the swing that will open their hearts a little bit to where they may look at some of the real facts that are out there. Yeah, like when people, when non-hunters read my book, for, at least from the feedback I've received, they said, I never thought about the people of Africa. Right. I just never thought about what it was like for them living with these creatures. And I feel like I know Lillian and Joel and Raphael and, and I want them to, you know, be well, you know. So it, it just, yeah, so I think that helped in a lot of ways with them by, by people getting to know the people that, that I got to know. Absolutely. Ms. Sue, how can somebody go about getting your book? What What is the best, easiest, quickest way to do so? The quickest, easiest way, I hate to say, is on Amazon, because good old Amazon, you know, <laughs> is there. It, it is all available at all distributors now, but you might have to have it ordered, like if you went into Barnes Noble or something. Um, it is in print and soft, I mean, it's in hardcover and soft cover. It's also on my website, if you would like signed copies, suetidwell.com, so you can get a signed copy there. I do have to charge for shipping, however. Oh, yes. But, um, and then it's also, I have an audio book now, so that's oh, pretty cool, because cool I included the, um, the wild, I included the lions and the hippos and the elephants as I heard them. Oh, so my throughout gracious. Throughout the book, you'll really hear bits of the elephant and the lions roaring and the, and the hyenas, and, and then even in the last chapter, you will actually get to hear Lillian's voice. Um, she read a, narrated a section of the last chapter. I just felt it was important for people to actually hear from her. Um, thanks to the miracle of the internet, we're still able to stay in contact when she's not on anti-poaching controls. Right. So, um, anyway, yeah, she's in that. So anyway, it's an audio book. It's available on most platforms. It's also free on Carbon TV, um, in a podcast form, like one chapter at a time. And, um, yeah, so it is, the audio book's available on my website too. So anyway, yeah, check it out and tell people about it, share it, um, pass it on. I, I'd appreciate, you know, the, any help in that capacity. We will do our darndest. I, I, I was aware that you had the uh, audio book. I listened to a little bit on Carbon TV, and uh, but I, I love the fact that you're talking about adding some of the sounds and, and particularly to have her narrate the last chapter or parts of the last chapter. That That's really cool as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I was pretty excited about that. So, I mean, she's a little, a little hard to understand, but I think people will appreciate it. Still, you know, they have to listen a little harder. But um, hey, and also another exciting thing: that book is going to be in Africa soon, in Africa bookstores. So oh my goodness! I'll have a publisher in Africa because Amazon doesn't really reach Africa. So hopefully by the end of this month or next month, it'll be available in South Africa and maybe some other places of Africa. So anyway, that's kind of exciting. That would be way exciting. How about that? I'm hoping by being in, in South Africa and African nations. If I can get it in bookstores, I'm hoping I will reach more non-hunters to the to the actual to the non-hunting safari people. You know, I'm yes. hoping they'll pick it up in the gift stores and stuff. And because like the more people that can read it and understand, the better it is for for hunters and for Africa and for everything in general. Because even though, as you know from reading, even though this book is about Africa, I mean, it applies to hunting everywhere. It does. Um, you know, the heart of a hunting, the ethics of hunting, um, all that. It. it, it Make people understand hunting here in America and throughout the world as well. So, well, absolutely fantastic. I'm I'm glad to hear that it's available in Africa. I'm loving the fact that you got the audio book out, and the the book is phenomenal, ladies and gentlemen. 
whether you're a hunter or whether you're not, really it makes no difference. There's such great information, such a great read to begin with. So get a copy of the book, get in touch, and I would strongly suggest that you go to suetidwell.com. Is that the, your website? Yes, that's my website. I would greatly encourage you to go to that website and to uh, and to order a book, and not only order the book, but I, I bet Miss Sue would be happy to autograph it for you as well, too, and, and that would make I it sure even do. more I special. I'll right there for you to give me your name and everything, and I'll sign it however you want, you know, do a personal note. Well, Miss Sue, I'm, I'm assuming we will see you in uh, Atlanta for the DSC in 25? Yeah, I'm not yet sure about there next year, but I'll, I'll be the SCI. Are you going to go to that? No, unfortunately, it falls during the time frame. I'm back to hunting right now. So. Oh, okay, okay. Well, hey, how are you doing hunting anyway? Well, we in Texas, we're fortunate. We have the uh, managed land permit. And the property, some of the properties that I manage are still in whitetail season is still going on until the end of February. And it's set up so that there's a quota of both does and bucks that can be taken and should be taken on those properties. And and that part being all part of the management program. So we've got a couple of places that we're still trying to take a few more does off for our season ends to keep that population in check with what that habitat can support, even in the worst of times. So. It's kind of a, a great time to go hunting here in Texas and, and put some more venison in the freezer, but it, I have to admit it's also fun. Well, enjoy your hunting and have much success, and hopefully um, I'll see you soon or next next year at the Dallas Safari Club. And uh, I thank you so much, Larry, for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. I am truly honored to have had you here around the campfire with us. And, and again, I strongly encourage people to go to your website and, and, and order one of the books. You will be so thrilled with it once you pick it up and start reading. And, and um, you, you'll find yourself going, well, I should have gone done this, but I think I'll read a little bit more. So <laughs> great, great <laughs> book. Miss Sue, thank you so very much for having been with us around the campfire. And I look forward to seeing everybody here again next week. We'll be right here around the DSC Campfire waiting on you. DSC's Campfires has also been brought to you by The Crown Bar in LaGrange, Texas. Habit, our gear, your adventure. The Texas Wildlife Association, Double Nickel Taxidermy, Vernon Brothers Game Calls, and H3 Whitetail Solutions.